Hey ladies, welcome to the Woman Podcast. My name's Katie Beza and I'm your host. And this episode is a continuation of a teaching series that we have started this year in 2021. So our good friends Rebecca Shatswell and Heather Hoyt will be leading us through the Gospel of Luke. And this teaching is recorded live at New Life Church in Conway. If you're local and you'd like to join in person, we would love to have you. We meet Thursdays at noon. And we hope this resource helps you as you read along in the book of Luke. And we hope that it encourages you that you can read the Word of God and you can get something out of it. So tune in and we hope you enjoy. Well, hello, ladies. Yeah, y'all keep coming in. Do your thing, honey. Okay, so... It's Easter week, like tomorrow's Good Friday, y'all. And how about the weather? Anybody else wish that we were out in the pergola? <laughs> I do, I'm not an outdoorsy person and I totally wish we were out in the pergola. It's amazing. Um, okay, this week we are actually aiming to hit three chapters. Ambitious, right? Yeah, but these are actually some sections that flow really quickly. We have several different small paragraphs. And so um, we're gonna jump into... Luke chapter 14, and I gotta say, did you guys appreciate Katie Bezet's teaching? Wasn't it so good? She is such a great teacher, y'all. I feel like every time, even just as a friend, every time she says something to me, it holds weight and I learn something, right? She just, she's not gonna just um, say a whole bunch of words to say a whole bunch of words. It's just usually really powerful. So I'm, t- I'm so thankful for her. And I was so wishing that she had really attempted that British accent right? I'm like, no, girl, you got it. (laughs) But um, I thought it was so powerful when she's talking about fearing man, like the Bible uses that fancy word called mammon. And you're like, wait, what is is that word? But like the fear of man and how it can... um, it can like really infect and devastate our hearts, right? You know, like, uh, was that saying I was thinking about as I was getting ready today, um, that if you live for the applause of men, then you will die by their criticism? And just how it's like in a moment, you might think receiving that applause is really helpful, but when it becomes a sustaining part of your life, when the criticism comes, it crushes you. And I just thought it was such a powerful word from Katie last week, so thankful. All right, today we are jumping into Luke chapter 14. Uh, and here we have a moment on the Sabbath day with Jesus and he is in the house of a Pharisee. And this moment um, where he's about to have another discussion on the Sabbath is actually the fourth conversation in the, chap- in the book of Luke um, that he has with the Pharisees about the Sabbath. This is the end cap to the conversations about the Sabbath, right? So the first time we have a conversation about the Sabbath, it's in chapter six, verses one through five, where he and his disciples are walking through the field. You know, they're like running. Can you just picture it? They're like running their hands across the grain and they got like a rumble in their tumble and they just pluck some of the heads of grain, rub it between their hands and eat the grain. And the Pharisees are like, "Uh -uh -uh uh-uh-uh-uh, you working on the Sabbath, okay? And Jesus totally shuts it down and says, the son of man is Lord over the Sabbath. I mean, he like, he comes out with his authority immediately, which I love, right? Uh, 
And then the next moment, which is actually the next set of scripture, verses six through 11, we're having another moment on the Sabbath um, where they're actually in the synagogue or in the church at this point. And a man is there with a deformed hand. And the Bible says that the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees were watching and waiting to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. So they've already had the one encounter with him where he dared to work by eating a, a, a head of or a grain um, on the Sabbath. And so they were waiting. They were like mentally trying to trap him, right? And um, I just was thinking about how unbelievable it is to me in that moment that they didn't care about the man who had the deformed hand. They didn't see it at all. All they were doing was sitting there trying to trap Jesus, trying to see him do something they disagreed with. They thought that broke the law. And really what it is, it's a critical spirit. And the problem with the critical spirit is that it often causes us to miss the miraculous. And um, I remember... Amber, I didn't ask you if I could share this. Okay. I remember when uh, my sister Amber was a missionary in India for two years. And I remember her telling, she'll tell this story and it's really powerful about how she came home from the mission field. And we had been a part of a really traditional church growing up. And she came to New Life kind of for the first time and it was a non-denominational church. And it's like, ah, if you're non-denominational, how do I know what you believe? How do I know what your theology is and your doctrine and all of this? And um, she was going to the services and, and she was just waiting to see if she heard something that was incorrect. So she would listen to whoever was speaking and with that filter of, I'm waiting to catch you almost, right? And she had a, a conversation with our other sister, Rebecca, and there was just this moment of revelation that when you're operating in that critical spirit, like you're, you're operating out of a filter of offense and you're, the, the sad portion is you come into the house of God and you can't even have a moment with him. You can't, you can't see what he's doing in the room. You can't hear from him because you're just waiting to be offended. And how that mentality, how that lens of offense, it affects everything that we see and it causes us to miss when the miraculous shows up from the hand of God, right? So this is where the Pharisees are at in this moment in chapter six. And I love it. Jesus, he didn't, he didn't play around. He's like, go ahead and come on up here. He like calls the guy front and center, heals him right in front of everyone. And then the next moment's in chapter 13, again in the synagogue, he's in the church again. And there's a woman who is bent over. And it's very interesting how the Bible describes this. It says that she is bent over because of an evil spirit. We could go into theology about sickness and where its origin is, but I just think it's very interesting that he's like, you see this predicament that she's bent over at like a 90 degree you know, angle, but, but it's, there's something spiritual that's happening here, not just a physical ailment. The enemy is actually behind this thing. And so we're gonna address this. We're gonna call this out and I'm gonna heal this woman, right? And so right there, uh, let, me, let me see. You guys probably read this last week. It was on the end of chapter 13. Um, he says that this daughter of Abraham has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years. And then he looks at the Pharisees and he says, now you, even on the Sabbath, you un." unbind or you unyoke your oxen and lead them to water and allow them to drink on the Sabbath. And so then what he did for this woman is he unbound her. Is that a right? Is that a word? Unbound, unbound. He unbound her <laughs> and he led him to himself who was the living water. 
And the problem is the Pharisees, they weren't even regarding people as highly as they were regarding their oxen, right? And so he's asking the Pharisees at this point, you are the leaders of the house right now. Can you regard people in the manner that I do? Because people are the real wealth of the kingdom, right? So he's drawing them to that understanding. And then here we flip over to chapter 14 and Jesus is now in the home of a Pharisee. And I wanna point one thing out before I talk about this. What I noticed in the four instances where he talks to the Pharisees about the Sabbath, the first one is in a field, the next two are in the church, and then the next one is in the home. And what that says to me is that he started in a broad way and it's like he clicked the lens and he brought it, he, he kept getting closer, zeroing in toward their heart. Okay, I'm gonna talk to you in a wide open space, then I'm gonna bring it in a little further. We're gonna talk about it in the church and then I'm gonna come into your home. And I'm gonna talk about your heart. I'm gonna bring it home for you, right? And so he's in the Pharisee's home. And it says that uh, on the Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of a leader of the Pharisees. And the people were watching him closely. There was a man there whose arms and legs were swollen. And Jesus asked the Pharisees, do you notice what's different about this one? He didn't, it didn't talk about how he read their minds. Like he knew what their thoughts were. He didn't even wait on it. He just immediately is like, okay, we've already had three other interactions about the Sabbath. Let's check where your heart is now. And so he says, um, let's see, he asked the Pharisees and experts in the religious law, is it permitted in the law to heal people on the Sabbath day or not? Can you hear, can you hear that tone? Like, I think we can infer this tone is like, now we've had three conversations about it. Now, have you nailed it down yet? Right? And I just, I picture being in that room and he's full of, the room is full of the leaders of the day, the religious leaders of the day. And he's like, okay, been trying to teach you something three times now. Have you figured this thing out yet or not? And so this man is sitting in there and we, we don't know, is he just one of the invited guests or is he someone like Mary who made her way in because she heard that Jesus was in the house? But it says that he was dealing with swollen arms and swollen legs. This is edema. If you know anything about edema, it is a condition based on the lymphatic system. When your lymphatic system is not draining, it backs the fluid up into your extremities. And it is always a sign or usually a sign of something way more serious than just swelling, than just, you know, know, water weight retention. And Jesus looks at him. He's in the home. He's not even in the synagogue. He's in the home and he's going to immediately address this man, right? So let's go on. It says, when they refused to answer, can I pause there and say they've gotten a little bit of wisdom under their belt? Because <laughs> the other three times when they go to answer Jesus, he's like, the son of man is the Lord over the Sabbath. What you got now? You know, and then he moves on and the next time they start and uh, then they start, they're plotting and they're like, what are we gonna do with this man? We're gonna plot to put him to death. But it's like every time they have a verbal response, they're like, it says in, in chapter 13, this shamed his enemies, but all the people rejoiced at the wonderful things he did. When he told them, you know, you don't even treat her as well as you treat your oxen, it shamed them and it shut them down. And so at this point, he asks them a question. They're like, I'm not responding. Are you responding? I'm not saying anything, right? He shuts us down every time. But he turned to them and said, in verse five, which of you doesn't work on the Sabbath? If your son or your cow falls into a pit, don't you rush over to get him? And they could not answer. I think it's amazing. Something that I thought about in looking at these accounts of Jesus, 
uh, healing on the Sabbath. Do you know what's different? I don't know if any of you, if anybody else recognized this, but as I'm reading through these accounts of him healing on the Sabbath, other times in the gospels, when he approaches someone who needs healing, he may have a conversation with them. What do you want me to do for you? Do you want to be healed? He has these questions. He didn't ask these people if they wanted to be healed. He just healed them. He didn't ask the woman bent over, do you want to stand up? Or the man with edema, do you want your edema to leave? Or the man with the crippled hand, are you tired of your crippled hand? He just said, come up here, be healed. And what I thought the Lord was just laying on my heart about that today is this is one more chance for us to see he is healing out of his goodness. This is just his unmerited goodness, right? And he's doing it on the Sabbath day. There's not a chance for you to work for it. He's literally communicating even in this moment that the healing of the Lord comes from a position of rest because rest is the way of the kingdom. It is the way of the kingdom. And I know we are here in the American church and the idea of rest is very foreign. I'll be honest, we're reading a book right now uh, in our worship staff that's really challenging. And I'm really having to look at what is actually rest in my life. What does it look like? And what does it not look like? It's very, very challenging to me. But I love that it's the kindness of the Lord visiting us in His Word to say, hey, even on the days where you rest, I'm here with healing. You don't have to do anything for it. I'm here and in my goodness, I will heal you because I am that good. Isn't that amazing? I just love that. So the next portion, he moves on. And this is a moment where he's also looking around at this banquet and, and he sees people and they're all vying for the seats of honor, right? They're like trying to get to the head of the table, right? And Jesus, he doesn't offer a parable in this moment. I actually really like how he communicates this. He's like, can I offer some advice? I'm like, what would you do if Jesus was sitting across from you? And he's like, can I offer some advice? He'd be like, go on. Yes, let me... Let me write this down, right? He just leans forward. He's like, can I offer you some advice? When you come into a banquet, into a wedding setting like this, whatever it is, don't just go up and take the seat of honor, you know? Because what if someone comes in and he's like of a higher position and they have to like unseat you and then you get embarrassed? Just go ahead and sit in the back. And if they, you know, if the uh, host of the event comes up and says, oh, no, 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 we've got a better seat for you, you come on up. But then he says something that this is so powerful to me. He says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And he's not just talking about in moments of a banquet, in moments of a feast, where you choose to sit. He's literally giving us every second of every day, we have a choice. We can choose humility or we can choose to exalt ourselves. If we exalt ourselves, then we're gonna fall from that place. We're gonna end up being humbled and it's gonna be uncomfortable. But if we will walk with humility the way that Jesus did, I mean, remember the scripture says that he thought nothing of equality with God as something to be grasped, but humbled himself, took on the form of, a hermit, the servant, <laughs> he was not a hermit, took on the form of a, right, right, of a servant and humbled himself even unto death on a cross. Like he didn't think anything. So if Jesus, King of the universe, walked with humility, he's inviting us into that also. And he's promising us that if we will walk in the same humility, that at the right time, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And at the right time, he will lift you up. When the Lord lifts you up, the Lord has done something that man cannot undo, right? Because God opens a door that no man can shut. Amen? Amen. So 
Then he talks to them about who they invite to their banquets. And this is amazing. You you guys like to have like family dinners. You like to have like your people over, right? You've got like family. It's like your friends and your family, right? You got your people and you know, sometimes you're like, okay, who's bringing what? You know, it's like you can bring people into your home and you know it's gonna be reciprocated at some point, right? At some point, okay, you're bringing main dish next time. This thing's gonna be reciprocated. But Jesus looks at these people and he says, okay, and by the way, after that humility talk, by the way, when you have a banquet, don't invite the people that are the closest to you. Go ahead and bring people into your home who have no way of repaying it to you. Like, go ahead and bring in the lime. Y'all, I said that when I was practicing this too, the lime, the lame, the blind, (laughs) the the mute, the deaf. Bring people in who have no ability to repay you. And isn't that a picture of the gospel? Because what did he do with us? He brought in a people who had no ability to repay him. There is no way that we will ever have the ability to repay the cross, right? And so he's, he's telling them, bring in people, that can't repay you. Uh-oh, bubble in my throat. And um, then he tells the parable of the great feast. Pause. Parable of the great feast. So there is a man who um, has prepared a great feast and he has sent out, and we are in around verse 15, 16 of chapter 14. He has sent out invitations to people for this feast, for them to come, Right? And so when the banquet was actually ready, so he sent out the invitations in advance, but the day that the banquet was actually ready, he sent out his messenger to go and gather in the people that had been invited. And so the messenger goes out to invite the people who had been invited, which by the way, Jewish custom and really kind of custom for us as well. If you send out invites, people typically RSVP, if if you're the people that RSVP, if you're like me, sometimes you forget to RSVP, but um, typically you have a response prior to the event, right? So even in Jewish custom, you send out the invitations, people accept the invitations, then that messenger is going to come on that day and say, okay, it's ready. So these people have already accepted the invitation. This isn't that the messenger is showing up and all of a sudden they say, no, I can't go. I'm turning down the invitation. This is the messenger showing up and they're saying, I've changed my mind. So what you see is that the first person that he talks to says, I've just bought a field and I need to go inspect it. Please send my apologies. The next person, I've just bought five oxen and I need to go see them do their job. Please send my apologies. The last person, he's like, ah, I now have a wife. (laughs) That's such a funny thing to me, but it's a cultural deal. In Jewish culture, they had um, an exemption if you were gonna be in the military. They had a a one-year reprieve on the first year of your marriage. So they had an exemption built in where you would not be sent off to war. You wouldn't be sent off to training for the first year of your marriage. But we're not talking about going off to a foreign war. We're talking about going to a banquet. So all of these excuses that are given, these are actually illegitimate excuses. And what is really being communicated here is, yeah, I agreed to it, but I just don't want to. I just don't want to. So the servant goes back to the master and he tells them they're not coming. Did anybody else think of in this moment, I didn't think of it when I was prepping these notes, but do you remember that moment on Beauty and the Beast where he like sets up for the dinner and um, uh, which one is it? Does Lumiere come in or Cogsworth? Anyways, they come in and they're like, she's not coming. And he's like, what? And he like rips open and he goes running. Anyways, that picture just flashed in my mind. It was really funny. But um, Jesus, or Jesus is not the man of the feast. Well, anyways, we could get into that. But um, 
So in this moment, the guy doesn't just go tearing through everything. He says, okay, great. They don't wanna come. Go on out into the streets and find the people who are the poorest. Go and find the ones who would actually love to be at this banquet, the poor, the broken, the destitute, the ones who are sick, who need a doctor. Go out and find them and bring them in. And so he goes out and he finds them and brings them in, but the house is still not full. And so the the guy holding the banquet says, okay, we still have more places. I want my house full. Now go out into the country lanes. And you know what he's saying when he says that? He says, leave the city. This is a picture of the gospel going to the Gentiles. He literally is saying, I came to my own people and they've rejected my invitation. So I'm now sending you outside of the city. And this is a promise as Jesus is explaining this to the Pharisees and they don't understand it yet. But he is now saying, I came to my own and you didn't receive me. And so I am sending my gospel and my good news way past where you are at because I'm gonna go to whoever receives the invitation. And you and I are a product of this very thing. I mean, you may be in here and you may have Jewish lineage and that's amazing and bless you. It's biblical to bless uh, the chosen people of God. But this moment, the Pharisees don't understand what Jesus is saying in this illustration. He is saying, you're gonna go out and you're gonna leave this city. My gospel, my good news is gonna go save whoever will receive the invitation. This invitation is going forth. And so they all come in and then he, then he says that those who initially were given the invitation and they rejected it, they're not gonna have a single bite of food from his banquet table. And it's harsh. You know, um, in John chapter one, let me flip over here. John chapter one, verse 10. John opens up with the beautiful description of Jesus. Verse 10 and 11, it says, he came into the very world that he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people and they even rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. This is the gospel. This is the good news of this banquet. You and I have been brought in, people who could not repay the kindness of the host of this banquet that we are sitting at. Amen. I'm so thankful for this. The last portion of uh, chapter 14 is titled The Cost of Being a Disciple. So I love what he's done here and the way that he's kind of set this up. He's addressing, he's addressing Sabbath. He's addressing uh, caring about the broken, uh, his heart for people. And then he says, now an invitation has been given. What are you gonna do with the invitation? And then by the way, if you receive the invitation, you gotta count the cost, right? Um, if you, I'm gonna skip to verse 28. This is like, the punchline, if you want to call it. He says, but don't begin until you count the cost. For those who begin construction on a building without first calculating the cost to see if there is enough money to finish it, or people won't begin a project unless they count the cost. And then, then he, <coughs> excuse me, um, he goes on to discuss an army's not gonna go into war without counting the cost of how many people they actually need in that army, right? So when you come to receive my invitation, I also want you to count the cost of ministry, count the cost of what I'm calling you into. And Rebecca taught us a few weeks ago um, on the Beatitudes, blessed are those. And he's literally gathering all of his guys around him and he's saying, you're gonna be poor, you're gonna be hungry, you're gonna thirst, you're gonna do all of these things, you still in? You still in it with me? Like, are you here? He's saying, count the cost. And I remember the very first time, let me get my phone out just so I have a timer. The very first time, 
that I can remember as an American girl holding the gospel, coming face to face with the reality when, when the Lord says, see that I've set before you today life and death, choose life that you may live. Here in America, praise God at this point, we still have religious freedom. God protect that in the name of Jesus. But we still have the right to gather in the name of Jesus and to worship openly and freely in the name of Jesus. But I remember several years ago um, befriending uh, some people who were from a different country and they were Muslim. And in that country, you do not deviate from the Muslim heritage. And I had been spending time with them And they had asked really powerful questions about the gospel and just about Jesus. And they actually, they came to several of our services and I I will never forget this. It was one of the Easter weekends. They were sitting out in the audience and they, you know, because English was second language for them. They're like reading the words on the screen. And we were out to eat afterwards and they looked at me and they said, Heather, we have a question for you. And I said, sure. And they said, there's a word that we didn't know that was on the screens. Can you explain it to us? And I was like, sure, what was the word? And they said, redemption. You talk about a setup for the gospel. And in that moment, I I was able to take them from the garden to the empty tomb, just sitting at a restaurant. And I remember praying, Holy Spirit, I can't reveal Jesus. That's your role. But I'm gonna be faithful with this opportunity. My words are few and I don't have all the knowledge and understanding, but I remember there was a garden and I remember before there was a cross, there was another garden and I remember the cross and that empty tomb and I I think maybe I can explain that by your power. Would you do something? And I thought, I just, I wanna know that you're revealing Jesus and I will never forget this moment. One of them looked at me and he goes, oh, I think I get it. So God created man. Man sinned against God. Man's sin brought a curse and Jesus came to break the curse. And I just looked at them and I said, you may not understand what I'm about to say to you, but I I just hope that this really speaks to your heart. I said, you can't be granted that understanding unless the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to you. He's revealing him to you right now. He is the savior of your soul. This story is for you. But in that moment, I also realized that this savior that I was offering to them, it was the first time that I was offering life to someone that if they went home with it, it could literally cause their physical death. And I just had, I got wrecked for a second because I thought this gospel of Jesus hasn't cost me much as an American, but I am well aware that if I offer Jesus to them, then they have to count the cost and they have to find that Jesus is worthy of their own life. So see today that I've set before you life and death, choose life that you may live choose to count Jesus, the living water, life himself as a greater value than your own physical life. And it wrecked me. It wrecked me because this literally was life and death. Count the cost. I wanna encourage you. A lot of times it's really easy for us to stay kind of um, 
in our protected spaces with our friends and with our family um, and to interact with our people. But I just wanna encourage you, what we see here is that Jesus, he was out in the field, he was in the church twice, and then he was in the home of a Pharisee. He's in the home of one of the religious leaders that was hated and despised by many because they were just oppressive with the law of God. I wanna encourage you, engage people that you don't know. Engage the lost world because I don't wanna show up in heaven and it just be me and it just be me and the women who are in this room. Our goal and our mission is to finish what Jesus began in his three years of ministry. It is to take up the cross, take the gospel to those. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. We are to take up that mantle and to go to the broken world with the truth of who Jesus is. And we don't have to know all the things, you know? We don't have to be like, I'm a scholar and, you know, whatever. All you have to know is what Jesus did for you. I know what he did for me. I know where I would be if it weren't for the scandalous grace of Jesus. All we have to do is be able to explain who the Savior is to us and what he's done for us. To explain, we were fallen. We rejected him. There had to be someone to come and pay the price. That someone came and he's the Savior of the world. His name is Jesus. And receiving him and his sacrifice means that we are restored and reconciled to the heart of the Father. It's just that easy, right? So we count the cost. Chapter 15. Check my time. Chapter 15, I, I love this because here's what we've seen Jesus do. He's kind of set the stage and he has said, there's an invitation that is going out, right? I need you to count the cost of the invitation. Then when you have received this invitation or you're still standing on the outside, maybe even as a religious leader, he says, now I want you to see people the way that I see them. So he's gonna give three parables right in a row, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And he's giving an opportunity for us to view people the way that he does. And so he starts out with the lost sheep, and you've heard this, there are songs written about this, that how God would leave the 99 for the one, right? So the parable of the lost sheep, the man's got 100 sheep. One of them wanders away. The 99 are good, but he takes off after the one. He comes back, the, the sheep is on his shoulders and he calls all of his friends together. And he's like, hey, I got my sheep. We need to come back and we need to celebrate this, right? And then that, that scripture that we will hear pastors refer to frequently, when we talk about, we, we say here um, at New Life, when even one person gives their heart to Jesus, all of heaven throws a party, all of heaven throws down. This is the portion of scripture where that is from. He says right here in the end, he says, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over the 99 others who are righteous and have not strayed away. He's gonna go on to the next parable, the parable of the lost coin. A woman's got 10 coins and she loses one of them. She is like going through her house, tearing it up, cleaning it up, trying to find that lost coin, right? 
And then as she finds the coin, it says she'll call her friends and neighbors in and say, rejoice with me that I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Usually when Jesus is speaking of things in multiples, he's really trying to drive a point home here, right? He is saying my perspective of the one that is lost is that I won't let anything hold me back from going after that one. And then not only am I gonna gain the one, but as soon as that one is here, we are throwing down y'all. We're throwing a party, right? He says it twice, meaning that celebration in heaven is a really big deal. It's a big deal when someone lost comes home to the father, right? And then he's gonna go into the parable of the lost son. But before I get into the parable of the lost son, here's what I wanna say. Jesus, as I said just a second ago, he set the stage here to say, here's the invitation that I'm giving you. Now count the cost of the invitation. And now I want you to see how I view people. But he's not just saying, I want you to see how I view people. He is actually giving the potential of a heart transplant right here. He's saying, this is how I view people. And now I want it to become how you view people. I want you to be the shepherd that goes after the one, that leaves the 99, goes after the one, brings it in, and then the church is gonna celebrate. I want you to be the one who goes after the lost coin because you know its value. The value didn't diminish when it walked away. It was still worth exactly what it was worth when it was present. I want you to go after that one and bring them in and then throw a party. Does that make sense? This is a heart transplant that he's offering. So receive the invitation, count the cost. Then I'm gonna give you my heart. And then we come to the parable of the lost son, or as we more commonly know it, the prodigal son, the prodigal son, right. So he's gonna tell an illustration. Well, I was gonna say, did anybody ever feel like the prodigal in their family? I'm just gonna put my hands in the air. That that was totally me, okay? Um, Parable of the lost son. So a man had two sons. We are in chapter 15, starting at verse 11. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Pause. I want us to understand according to Jewish culture, because this isn't, this isn't something that would really kind of happen in our world, unless you're like, wealthy elite and you have trust funds. I, I, do, I do not. Um, daughter of, you know, Don and Julie, we got five kids and there was no talk of, let's divide this between the five of you, right? So, but in this culture, um, this son going up to the father and saying, I want my share of the estate now before you die was him effectively saying, I'm done with you and I wish you were dead. That's what he's communicating when he says this to his father, Right? And so he agrees to divide the wealth between his sons. Can you, how many of you have kids? Majority of you, yeah. Um, Can you imagine what you would feel if your kid came up to you and said, I'm done with you. I want whatever you're gonna give me when you die, but I'm done and I'm leaving. How gut-wrenching that would feel, right? So the father divides the wealth. A few days later, the younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. There he wasted all of his money in wild living. About the time that the money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. I wanna tell you, oftentimes in scriptures, the truth I learned from my sister, Rebecca, oftentimes in scripture, when we see famine, it is representative of the judgment of God. 
So he has squandered all of his living and then a famine hits the land. So it's like judgment has hit the land, right? And he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. I'm gonna also pause right here because you remember um, in Jewish culture, pigs are an unclean animal. So this interaction that he's having with these pigs is like the lowest of low. And then wanting to eat the food that the pigs are given is even lower than that, right? This could have rendered him ceremonially unclean. This is what we're looking at. We're looking at he squandered his wealth, prostitutes, partying, all of that. Then he becomes even lower than that, ceremonially unclean. But in this state, it says, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I'm gonna go home to my father and say, father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant he comes to his senses. And I don't know about you, but I remember the moment in my life where I came to my senses. And oftentimes what that looks like is that we come to the end of ourselves and that's the place where we find the beginning of him. And in this moment, when he comes to his senses, he has come to the end of himself and he recognizes, it's because we will recognize our need in that place. We have to get to the end of ourselves to recognize our need oftentimes, right? So he recognizes his need and he says, even, my high, even the hired servants are treated better than this. He provides for them. They have nothing, they have no need of anything. So if I return home, I can just beg him to become a hired servant. He has humbled himself in this moment, right? So verse 20, so he returned home to his father and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Now remember that by virtue of what he was doing, working with the pigs, he would have been considered ceremonially unclean. But did the father even pay attention to that? No, he didn't. What he saw was his son who had no ability to clean up his own life. He had no ability to save himself. He had no ability to redeem all that had been lost. He saw his son turn and look at him and head in his direction. And I just want us to remember, this is the goodness of God, that no matter where we're at, even as a follower of Jesus, if we've already chosen him as a savior, if we have one area of our life that we've shut the door on and we're like, oh, I just don't really want you in there, God. But the moment that we turn and we look at the Father, the Father doesn't look at us and see the dirt. He doesn't look at us and see the junk. He looks at us and sees the son and the daughter. And he takes off running, disregarding the junk and says, I want you, I want you. It says, but the father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. What he is doing here, he is not just bringing his son back into the house. He is restoring him to the position that he had in the house. He's restoring him to wealth. He's restoring him to authority. That ring, that's that's a symbol of authority. He literally is placing his covering over him. He's placing his authority back in his hand. He has fully restored. That's what we have got to get 
get as believers. There's oftentimes we think if I've backtracked and I've walked away from the Lord for any amount of time, God, maybe if you just bring me in and, and you know, you don't really have to use me. You don't have to do really anything with my life, but the Lord's like, no, 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 no. I've brought you back in, not to just say, okay, now you're on the inside. I brought you back in to put my covering over you, to restore my authority to you, to give you a position in this kingdom. I'm restoring it to you. He is the Redeemer. He is the great restorer of our lives. Amen? Amen. So they do this, they go out, they kill the fatted calf. It says, meanwhile, verse 25, the older son was in the fields working. And when he returned home, he heard the music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told. And your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. And the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all of these years I have slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing that you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even a young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours, ooh, he didn't say my brother. He said, when this son of yours, realize he's totally detached from him. When this son of yours, comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes. You celebrate him by killing the fattened calf. And the father said to him, look, dear son, you've always been with me. You've stayed with me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has now come back to life. He was lost and he is now found. There's something really important here. This older son, notice how he identifies himself. He identifies himself as a slave. Do you realize what, what has happened here? What I felt like the Lord said to me is, the younger son just came out and said it. I'm done with you. I'm disconnecting you. I'm divorcing from you. So take me what, take, or give me um, what I would have if you died. He verbally divorced him, but the older son divorced him in his heart, but never said it. The older son didn't consider himself a son. He considered himself a slave. He considered his father a slave driver. He had a complete mistaken identity of his father and it led to the complete mistaken identity of his own life. He didn't recognize the father as a father anymore. Therefore, he could not recognize himself as a son. He recognized himself as a slave. But don't you love it that when the father speaks to him, the father doesn't call him slave. The father says, my dear son, the father was never messed up on the identity. He said, you've always been with me. Everything that I have is yours. You didn't even have to ask for it. It was at your beck and call. Everything that I had was yours. But the son was in the same condition in his heart that the younger son was in his physical life. This was convicting to me, y'all. This was really convicting. Because even when our lives may seem put together, there are often times where we mistake our identity because we, we misunderstand his identity. This past week, as my sisters gathered and we were just having a time of prayer, um, Rebecca felt like she heard a word from the Lord for me and he said, Heather, I don't wanna use you, I wanna dwell with you. How often... How often do we get in the headspace that God just wants to use us? That is a slave. When you become a tool, that's a slave. But when you're a daughter, 
That's family. He wants to dwell with you. This older son had the dwelling of the father near him, but in his own heart, he didn't recognize that. He had divorced that identity. So I just wanna encourage us to remember that God doesn't just wanna use us. He wants to dwell with us. And how much it had to have grieved the heart of the father. This is what you thought the whole time? You thought this the whole time? That you were a slave? yet you were in close proximity, how easy is it for us to be around the things of God, to be around the people of God and still in our hearts and our mind, we view ourselves as just being used by God, not being, not dwelling with the Lord. It's so easy for us to get into task mode. I don't know if you're like me, but I tend to do immediately what's in front of me. And I'm like a horse with blinders. I, I will tend to not see what's to the left or to the right. It's like, what's on the plate in front of me? Get that done and move on to the next one, Right? That's the mentality of a slave. That's not the mentality of a daughter. And I just want you to know, I struggle with this. I really do. I struggle with just being. And I love that saying that he's not created human doings, he's created human beings so that we will be with him, not just do for him, right? So I just wanna encourage you to be with the Father be with him, shut out the noise, turn on some worship music. Don't even think I've got to read one chapter. I've got to dissect it. I've got to, no, just be with him. Just talk to him. If you need an idea, read Revelation chapter one and Revelation chapter four and picture in your mind, the throne room of God. Revelation one, where John's like, I fell as though I were dead in front of him when he saw the majesty of Jesus. Revelation chapter four, he's in the throne room. He's describing the throne room around the throne. There's, it's like an emerald rainbow, like really picture that throne room because when we step before the Lord in prayer, we're actually stepping into his throne room, right? That's the greater reality of our lives. Just let's take a moment and breathe, right? And just be in his presence, amen? Amen, chapter 16. I'm gonna hit something really quickly and then we are, we're gonna break up into groups. All right. So chapter 16, we have the parable of the shrewd manager, right? Um, and here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna bypass the story. I'm gonna get to the punchline. I'm gonna get to the truth really quickly uh, and then we'll break up into groups. But Jesus is unfolding a kingdom principle right here that's really important for us to get. Verse 10, he says, if you're faithful in the little things, you will be faithful in the large ones. But if you are dishonest in the little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? E, did y'all hear that? Can I just say, I read that a few times. I was like, <clears throat> okay, hang on, hang on. Let me back that guy up because that's like apples and oranges, Right? You just said, if I'm untrustworthy with worldly wealth, which what we know to be worldly wealth is gonna be finances and possessions, right? Then I'm not gonna be trusted with the true riches of heaven. What are the true riches of heaven? People. Uh-oh. This literally means that how we handle our finances and our, our possessions can determine how much we get to steward in the kingdom of heaven. Anybody else convicted by that? Me, I'm convicted by that. Um, but Jesus is laying down initially a principle that says what you steward well grows. That's a kingdom principle. It's not only just a kingdom principle, that's a natural principle. You see that, anybody in here a plant lover? 
My hand is down, but I'm counting the ones whose hands are up. <laughs> My sister is definitely a plant lover. I do not steward plants well, therefore they die. My best friend has 70 plants. I didn't just pull that number out of the air. It's legit. She has 70 plants. And she does this thing where she clips part off and sticks it down in water called propagating. I didn't even know that word before she decided to love plants. And she grows a new plant off of an already existing plant. And she's so good at tending these plants. And because she is so good at stewarding these plants, they grow. Even in the winter, y'all, her plants stayed alive. It's amazing. She's so good at stewarding. And what you steward well, it grows. Same thing is true in the kingdom. What we steward well grows. That is a kingdom principle. When you see the blessing of God on someone's life, it's probably because they've stewarded something well. They've stewarded people well, right? Um, so that's just a kingdom and a natural principle. Number two, how we handle our finances determines what we get to steward spiritually. And then number three, let's read on verses 12 and 13. He says, if you're not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? Yeah, yikes. Number 13, no one can serve two masters for you will hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the issue. He zeroes in on the heart. Jesus is always going to come back to the heart of the issue, right? And the reason that, you know, Pastor Rick says that um, our pocketbooks are really tied to our hearts, right? Where your, where your treasure is there, will your heart be also? Um, but here's, here's the bottom line. If you love God, you will probably handle your finances well. If you love your finances, you'll probably mishandle the Lord. Ooh. I'm gonna say that again. If we love the Lord, then we will handle and we will steward our finances well. But if we're just loving our finances, then we will probably mishandle the Lord in our lives. It's super convicting. We can't serve two masters. I, I thought about this chapter and I was thinking if I had to title this chapter, it would be something like, who do you love? Or who is God? Or which one are you gonna choose? Like that's where I was headed with this chapter because he's drawing a clear delineation. He's like, you pick one or the other. So I've given you the invitation it's up to you to receive it. Then I want you to count the cost of the invitation that I've given to you. And now I wanna teach you to love people the way that I have loved people. And then on the end of this in chapter 16, I'm gonna bring you back to a moment where you have to decide who's gonna be Lord. Is it gonna be your possessions? Is it gonna be everything that you own? Is it gonna be your wealth? Or is it going to be me? But you can't serve both. You're gonna love one and hate the other. You need to be devoted to one and despise the other. And he's inviting us. I just, I love this because I just want you to think. I think oftentimes we tend to think, well, if God gives me something big, I'm gonna be, you know, really careful with it. I'm gonna be faithful with, but, but he is actually saying, if, you're, if, if you can't be faithful with a tiny thing, you won't end up with the big thing. So can you just take a small step that's not overwhelming and be faithful with something little? I mean, think about it. If you went from, you know, uh, never having held a Bible study in your home to having to plan woman conference. Can you imagine how terrifying that would be? <laughs> that would be so terrifying. But just start small, have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody, right? So I just wanna encourage you with what you have in your hands, let's just determine today to be faithful. Settle this thing in our heart, who is God? And I'm gonna be faithful to him and I'm gonna ask him to cause the thing that I'm faithful with to grow, amen? Amen. <laughs>
Thank you.